Welcome to Quirky, Creepy, and Freaky, a podcast where we talk about wonky animal facts. I'm your host, Olivia, and each episode, I will tell you about a different weird fact from the animal kingdom. Happy Halloween, everyone! And how fun that this week, the episode is actually coming out on Halloween! So, for our Halloween episode, to finish up our spooky season series, we're going to be talking about vampire bats. Two fun Halloweeny sort of things. Vampire bats belong to a whole family of New World leaf-nosed bats, Philostomidae, with other members of the family eating more normal bat things like nectar, pollen, insects, and fruit. The three species of vampire bats are the only three species to do hematophagy or sanguivory, which is the eating of blood. Interestingly, vampire bats are not all grouped within the same genus. They are all placed into their own because reasons. So we have the common vampire bat, and full disclosure, I did not double check how to pronounce these, so I might be off. Uh, So we have the common vampire bat, Desmodus rotundus, which, hence the name, is the most common of the vampire bats. They range from Mexico to South America, being found in rainforest in Brazil, Chile, and Argentina. The hairy-legged vampire bat, Diphila equidata, is found in tropical and subtropical forests and ranges from southern Texas down to eastern Peru and southern Brazil. Then finally, we have the white-winged vampire bat, Damus youngi, which ranges from Mexico to tropical South America, which would include Venezuela, Paraguay, even Argentina, and then Trinidad, which is an island off the coast of Venezuela. Uh, None of these species of bats are very big, with them really only getting to be about 40 to 48 grams at the biggest, which is about 2 ounces, a little bit bigger. Vampire bats diverged from their closest relatives between 20 to 25 million years ago, and then within only 4 million years they developed all of the adaptations necessary to survive on a blood-based diet, which makes them one of the fastest examples of natural selection. Historically, there have been quite a few hypotheses put out there to explain how they came to be sanguivorous. Some researchers thought that they evolved from fruit-eating bats that had sharp teeth, others that they originally fed on insects that were attracted to the wounds of animals and then over time progressed to feeding on the wounds themselves, and then others saying that they were originally specialized nectar feeders that essentially just switched over to feeding on another liquid. More recent studies, though, say that they likely arose from insectivores and then diverged over time. With the shift to a blood-based diet comes quite a few physiological challenges that the bats need to overcome to survive on this diet. One of the obvious factors is that that is quite a lot of liquid to ingest, with blood being about 78% liquid. The dry matter portion has a very high protein content, about 93%, and only 1% carbs, so not a whole lot of sugar that they are bringing in. There are also pretty low levels of a lot of vitamins, which includes essential amino acids, which are the amino acids that cannot be produced by the body. It needs to be included in the food. 
And in one meal, these little guys also are consuming a lot of iron. And one vampire bat meal can contain up to 800 times the amount of iron consumed in a typical human meal. But the study also didn't specify what it was considering for a human meal, but whatever it was, that's a lot of iron to be bringing in, especially when you're only two ounces. And another thing, since they are drinking blood, they are a lot more likely to be exposed to bloodborne pathogens, so they need to be able to deal with those as well. So then, to deal with the excess of liquid, they became very efficient in processing the liquid. They use active water transport to carry the water to the bladder, and for some of the species, they will rest for only a few minutes after feeding for them to get rid of the excess water, sometimes urinating for two whole minutes before they're light enough to take off again. Their kidneys also have evolved to have higher filtering activity, which will help with the excess of water, as well as with the high protein content of their food. They produce more urea to deal with the high protein content, so then that's filtering out the protein. And then to deal with the high iron content, they have a super efficient storage system within the intestinal epithelium, the lining of the intestines, and it limits the absorption of iron while minimizing any unnecessary losses. So they're really good at keeping what they need and then ditching what they don't, so then they aren't risking iron toxicity. There are also some very interesting adaptations in some of their metabolic pathways that had to come about with the lower amino acid content of their diet as well as the lack of sugar. So they actually, over time, became glucose intolerant and now produce acetyl-CoA, a molecule that is essential in metabolizing proteins, carbs, and lipids in order to produce energy for our cells through an alternate pathway. So they essentially evolved to survive without the essential amino acids that they don't get in high amounts in their diet. To deal with the increased exposure to diseases, they evolved to have a very powerful immune system, which in part is due to a change in their gut microbiome. There are some other pretty fun adaptations that they have in order to help them find their blood meal. They don't have the nose leaf that other family members have what they do have are thermoreceptors on their nose that essentially give them thermoimaging capabilities. And what's also particularly interesting about this is that the nucleus they have on their brain to process the thermal imaging is actually very similar to the nucleus that a lot of thermal sensing snakes have. So I thought that was interesting. The ability to detect different temperatures like this allows them to find areas on their victim's body where the blood is flowing closest to the skin, so it's therefore easiest access to blood. Vampire bats also have very sharp teeth, which is different than, other, than some other bats. Common vampire bats in particular have teeth that are so sharp there are accounts of people getting cuts just from handling skulls in museum collections. Their sharp teeth are what help them to puncture their prey to get at the tasty blood inside. Vampire bats have also evolved to have toxic saliva. Once they get the blood flowing, they want to keep it going so that they can so that they are able to feed. 
Vampire bats have an anticoagulant in their blood, very fittingly called Draculin, and it is actually named after Count Dracula. And this anticoagulant prevents their victim's blood from clotting and specifically promotes a continual flow. So now that we've talked about how they deal with all of that blood and some of their different adaptations, how do they actually get the blood? The three vampire bats get the blood in very much so the same way. The prey and approach are just a little different. Common vampire bats are the only vampire bats that actually target mammals, and that does therefore occasionally include humans. These guys are capable of moving on the ground, which is different than the other two vampire bats, using their wings for forward motion. So what they do is land on the ground and then slowly approach their sleeping target. Once there, the bat uses its heat-sensitive nose to locate an area where the blood is closest to the skin, and then they bite to create a puncture wound. The host does generally stay sleeping during this whole event, especially if it's a larger animal. It just doesn't notice the bite or doesn't care, so it sleeps. You may expect that the bat then sucks up the blood, like vampires do, but nope. As the blood starts to flow, the bat licks up the blood, often consuming 50 to 60% of their body weight in blood. It often takes right around 20 minutes for the bat to get its fill, and then it processes however much of the blood it needs to process so that it can take off. Hairy-legged and white-winged vampire bats both actually target birds instead of mammals. Given that, they don't generally approach their prey on the ground since they're birds, so they're often going to be in trees. But if they are targeting a chicken, then there might be a bit of a ground approach. But generally, they'll be crawling through the branches. So after they approach their sleeping bird target by crawling along a branch, they will detect a nice and easy blood spot, typically along the legs and feet of the bird. And then before they bite, they lick the skin to soften the area and to get rid of any feathers. If their bird prey does get startled while they're feeding, the bat will just hide under the branch for a few moments until the bird settles down again before it can start feeding. And after it licks the site, um, it does bite the wound and then starts licking away. So one of the downsides with being a little vampire bat is that you can only survive two days without feeding, otherwise you will die of starvation. Finding food every day isn't a guarantee, so they had to find a way to still get by. Vampire bats, like other bats, are quite social and can live in colonies anywhere from 12 bats to a few hundred bats. Given that, vampire bats also have quite the, or have developed quite the social support system within their colonies. If a bat wasn't able to find food one night, it can approach a fellow bat that did find food and ask for it. If this, this bat can then regurgitate a small amount of its blood meal to help sustain the other bat. What's interesting here, though, is that it's not always the hungry bat that initiates this interaction. If a bat that had a meal that night notices that another bat is not looking too hot and looks like it hasn't eaten, it will actually approach the bat to share its food, and it's actually thought that it is more likely that a full bat will approach a hungry bat than it is for a hungry bat to beg for food. Now, of course, since we're talking about bats, and specifically bats that bite other mammal, mammals on the regular, 
we will finish up today with a little bit on rabies. Rabies can and will be transmitted to humans by a vampire bat bite, but it does occur at pretty low rates. Some statistics say that rabies only occurs in 0.5% of vampire bats, and in most cases, an infected vampire bat will be out of it enough that it won't really be able to fly. That's not to say transmission doesn't happen. In 2005, vampire bats were responsible for 55 documented cases, and then... According to CDC, in the U.S., while there may not be very many vampire bats, there are other bats that may occasionally bite people out of defense. And out of the very few people in the U.S. that do get rabies, about one to three people a year, seven out of ten of those that died from rabies got it from bats. Because it can apparently be pretty easy to not really know whether you were bitten or scratched. Other mammals can carry rabies as well. And in the U.S., the animals that often, that most often are reported to have rabies include raccoons, skunks, and foxes. And again, all mammals are susceptible to rabies, at least all terrestrial mammals. Fortunately, while rabies is guaranteed death if it's not treated, it is a very treatable thing. And if you get the rabies shot shortly after potential exposure, you'll be okay. So I guess the PSA here is that if you think you may have been bitten by an infected animal or have gotten bit by some random wildlife, don't panic. Instead, just get the rabies vaccine. And then another PSA to round it out, we'll leave the drinking of blood to the bats. Don't try to be a vampire. Thank you for listening to today's episode and be sure to tune in to next week's episode. Please rate and review on iTunes and Podbean if you're there. And you can also find me on Amazon Music and Audible. Keep an eye out for the upcoming Patreon page to help to support this podcast. I'm planning on looking at that this week. But in the meantime, share us with someone you know that could use some more animal facts in their life. If you have a favorite quirky, creepy, or freaky animal fact, send it on in at quirkycreepyfreakypod at gmail.com and it may be featured in a future episode. Audio editing and recording done by me, Olivia Strike. Intro music created by Kaylee Strait. Thank you for listening.